Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. In this episode, we're looking at the lives of America's first real celebrity killers, 19-year-old Charles Starkweather and his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate. The object of perverse levels of public attention, the pair participated in a series of spree killings between December 1957 and January 1958 that would go on to inspire movies, music and extensive, unrelenting news coverage. Looking at it through a modern lens, the story looks very different. Carol Ann Fugate spent the rest of her life attesting that she was a victim, not an offender. And after years of public scrutiny and tabloid attention, it's difficult not to believe her. In this episode, we reevaluate the events of the Starkweather spree killings and pay respect to the hardship faced by Carol Fugate, both during the spree killings themselves and throughout the rest of her life. 1973. The lives of Starkweather and Fugate are forever etched into the American cinema canon, memorialised on screen by Martin Sheen as Kit and Sissy Spacek as Holly in Terence Malick's Badlands. Tragic, romantic anti-heroes, they become a modern Bonnie and Clyde. Holly, the carol of this story, is portrayed as ultimately sympathetic but very much a romantic. At one point in the film, Holly reflects, I could have snuck out the back or hid in the boiler room, I suppose, but I sensed that my destiny now lay with Kit, for better or for worse, and that it was better to spend a week with one who loved me for what I was than years of loneliness. She surely could have snuck out the back or hid, but love and destiny were keeping her there, Not fear, but passion. Less a victim of a kidnapping, more of a fool in love. 1982. Bruce Springsteen cements Starkweather and Fugate into American music in the title track of his solo album, Nebraska. Sheriff, when the man pulls that switch, sir, and snaps my poor head back, you make sure my pretty baby is sitting right there on my lap. They declared me unfit to live, said into that great void my soul had be hurled. They wanted to know why I did what I did, sir. I guess there's just a meanness in this world. Viewing the pair as deeply in love, raw, almost primal figures, Springsteen plays their story as both perverse and tragic. In 2011, photographer Christian Patterson releases his collection Red-Headed Peckerwood. It consists of photographs taken along the 500-mile route that Starkweather and Carol drove. It features photos of their victims. 1996. Peter Jackson's The Frighteners features characters clearly based on Starkweather and Carol Fugate. The early 50s, and a young nobody named Stephen King collects a scrapbook of newspaper clippings about Starkweather and Fugate. 
And in 1989, Billy Joel mentions the Starkweather homicide in his song, We Didn't Start the Fire. While Carol Fugate is serving her prison sentence for first-degree murder, the world around her is inventing and reinventing her story. They are diving into the darkest places of the most traumatic stretch of her life and making them into the new American fairy tale. When she's released from prison in 1973, she returns to a society as mesmerised as they are repulsed by her. From her small post as a janitorial assistant in Lansing, Michigan, she can only watch as her crimes are relitigated again and again in the court of public opinion. 1956. A 13-year-old Carol Fugate is tagging along with her older sister Barbara on a night out. Barbara is meeting up with her boyfriend, but Carol isn't going to be left a third wheel. Barbara's boyfriend is bringing along a friend of his own, 18-year-old Charles Starkweather. The two hit it off and quickly start dating themselves. Carol is a reserved, reasonably shy girl. She lives with her mother and stepfather and attends Lincoln High School. Charles is a different story. The child of a carpenter and a waitress, Charles is born with a slight birth defect, causing his legs to be slightly misshapen, and he speaks with a speech impediment. The bullying at high school is relentless, and slowly but surely, Charles Starkweather's personality changes. He goes from being kind and passive to aggressive and violent, from bullied to bully. He drops out of high school and gets a job at a newspaper warehouse as it's just down the road from Carol's house, allowing him to visit her most days. This is short-lived. Charles decides to teach Carol to drive in his dad's car, and after she crashes it, he gets kicked out of his family home and picks up a new job as a garbage collector. Charles's worldview continues to deteriorate incrementally. He resents his place in life and begins plotting bank robberies, not out of hope to move to a new lot in life, but more out of nihilism. It was all miserable and pointless, so at this point, why not? This reaches a breaking point on November the 30th, 1957, when Starkweather makes a trip to the local service station. Wanting a stuffed animal, presumably as a gift for Carol, he requests that Robert Colvert, the gas station attendant, sell it to him on credit. When Robert refuses, Starkweather leaves the store, only to return and return and return. Multiple times throughout the night, Charles re-enters the gas station, buying an assortment of small items until ultimately pulling out his shotgun. He requests that Robert Colvert gives him all the money from the store and pointing the shotgun at his head, shepherds him into the car. Robert drives the two out into a remote area under duress before making a grab for the shotgun. The struggle escalates and Charles injures Robert before ultimately shooting and killing him. 
Charles Starkweather had walked through the door, and there was no going back. Now he just had to pull Carol through after him before it closed. Two months later, Carol comes home to find Starkweather sitting there. It would have been odd to see him there to begin with, as her parents didn't approve of him. But the realisation that they are nowhere to be seen is cause for alarm. The gun in his hands is cause for panic. The fact she'd broken up with him a month earlier, something later denied by Starkweather and the media at large, that by itself is cause to run. But Carol can't. She's trapped. Starkweather outlines to her that he's taken her mother, stepfather and two-year-old stepdaughter hostage. But as long as she complies with him, they'll be okay. Little does Carol know that Starkweather has already murdered all three of them and hidden their bodies in the basement. She won't find this out for days to come. The truth of all this will go on to be disputed. Starkweather will claim that Carol was there from the beginning and helped murder her parents, whereas Carol will stick to the hostage narrative. At the time, the public sides with Starkweather's story. Come the 21st century, not so much. The two remain alone in the house for nearly a week. Again, this period will be intensely scrutinised. A key focus by the courts will be Carol and Starkweather's sex life. Starkweather will go on to describe spending this time constantly having sex and watching TV. Carol testifies that Starkweather actually struggled with impotence and a medical examination revealed that her hymen was intact. Yet somehow, these unproven sexual relations will go on to serve as damning evidence against Carol in court, apparent proof that she's in love with Starkweather and that she's a murderer. Why, jurors will ask, could she not just have run away? After Fugate's grandmother starts to catch wind that something is wrong at the family home, Carol and Charles hit the road. In a two-day period, Charles will kill eight people and two dogs. Driving from location to location, Carol is quickly implicated as an accomplice. The most damning moment, and the only supposed crime Carol will ever admit to, involves the murder of high school couple Robert Jensen and Carol King. After killing a family friend of Carol Fugate, Charles and her escape in a car, only to promptly crash it into the mud. The aforementioned high school couple, Robert Jensen and Carol King, pick them up and quickly regret it. Again using the threat of his shotgun, Starkweather forces the two to drive to their own demise, this time in an abandoned storm cellar. Once there, he shoots Robert and attempts to rape Carol, but because of his impotence, finds himself unable to. He shoots her instead, leaving both lovers dead. Carol Fugate will go on to admit to holding a shotgun on the two teens. This admission, while damning to some, makes complete sense, given the understanding that Carol still believes her family are being held hostage, 
or with any form of acknowledgement of just how threatening her ex-boyfriend was to her. Starkweather, of course, will go on to claim that Fugate, not him, shot Carol King. After murdering wealthy industrialist C. Lauer Ward and his wife Clara in their home and robbing them of their jewellery, Starkweather and Carol catch the eye of the police. The police commission a block-by-block search of the entire city of Lincoln, attempting to weed out the pair. Getting spotted multiple times, Starkweather decides they need to swap cars, and when he finds travelling salesman Merle Collison asleep in his car off to the side of the highway, he doesn't hesitate to kill him and take his car. Attempting to flee, Carol in tow, he turns the car on, hits the accelerator, and it stalls. Unbeknownst to Starkweather, the car has a parking brake, something he's completely unfamiliar with. As Starkweather attempts to restart the engine, a local motorist stops to see if he needs any help. The motorist is geologist Joe Sprinkle, and Starkweather is quick to threaten him with his firearm. Just as he does that, however, the local deputy sheriff, William Romer, arrives on the scene. Seeing her opportunity, Carol legs it towards Romer, yelling, It's Starkweather! He's going to kill me! She makes it safely to the deputy. Why didn't she run? The jurors will later go on to ask. We can perhaps imagine Carol internally screaming inside her head, What are you talking about? Why didn't I run? I did run. I'm here, aren't I? I got away. I did. Starkweather elects to run himself, jumping in the car and escaping at 160 kilometres an hour. Three different police officers chase after him, firing their guns at him. One even succeeds in shattering his windshield, causing a shard of glass to fly off and hit Starkweather, cutting him deeply enough that he begins to bleed profusely. Believing that he's going to die, he pulls the car over and lets himself get arrested. We know how the trial goes. Starkweather receives a death sentence, making sure to throw Carol Fugate under the bus at every opportunity on his way to the electric chair. Meanwhile, Carol elects to serve as her own defence, a choice that will go on to haunt her. Having spent much of the killing spree in shock and still dealing with the trauma of losing her entire family, Carol is far from a charming lawyer. There are gaps in her memory, having spent eight months in a mental hospital before the trial, and she ultimately comes off as suspicious to the jurors, who, as we've established, already have their fangs out for her. Here's a clip of Carol being interviewed at the time. Such as actually pulling the trigger, such as stabbing anybody, it has always been strictly a question of her attitude. Did you ever uh, break down and cry and beg Charlie to uh, let you go or anything like that? Yes, I cried all the way. Now, had you gone with him for quite a while? Yes, I'd went with him a year before and then I told him I didn't want to see him again, but he came back. And after that Sunday, I'd went with him and then I kept telling him to leave. 
That, that Sunday, I told him to leave, and I told him I didn't ever want to see him again. Why, what had, uh, what had brought you to this conclusion? Why didn't you want to go with him anymore? Carol is charged with first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. She ultimately serves 17 years of that, three years longer than she spent in the outside world, after her sentence is reduced to 30 to 50 in 1973, allowing her to be eligible for parole. After her release from prison, Carol moves to Michigan, here she finds work as a janitorial assistant, hospital orderly, and childcare worker. She finds a husband in machinist and weather observer Frederick Clare. She changes her name to Carol Ann Clare and ultimately manages to build a new life. But of course, she's haunted by the past. She continues to protest her innocence in the face of a world where her story continues to be told and retold as Bonnie and Clyde for the baby boomers. She does face a romantic tragedy of her own, however, when in 2013 she's seriously injured in a car accident and Frederick is killed. No matter how far she runs, Carol can't seem to escape the darkness completely. In February 2020, a 76-year-old Carol makes one final bid for her innocence. She requests a pardon from the Nebraska Board of Pardons and manages to rally all the families of Starkweather's victims to support her application. She maintains to the board her innocence and asks them to help her alleviate the burden of being known as a convicted killer. And they refuse. The justification given is that pardons exist to provide relief to people suffering from the consequences of miscarried justice. Since she's not currently in prison and she's not paying fines, what's the point? The gesture would not have been a token one. Carol Ann Clare is a woman with a shadow, a perverse caricature written into the text of America itself and following her wherever she goes. A story that only grows more prominent with time, with the meteoric rise of true crime media catapulting her back into the spotlight. Be it in the eyes of Sissy Spacek or the words of Bruce Springsteen, Carol's defamed teenage self is waiting for her around every corner. Carol Ann Clare is still alive today, Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Jack McGee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song when we look at one of the largest scandals of the 20th century, the medical disaster of thalidomide. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service 
helps us to share this project with more listeners, so please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.